we're praying, looking at what God has made as we're praising Him. What a place! That, that psalm took on new meaning as we just sang it for me. That's great. Sure glad that was chosen. Well, we're talking about covenant nurture and catechism. And I just made a beginning of the discussion of Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to have to try to be fairly constrained and stick to my text here. You won't mind if I read much of this and not comment further on it. I would like, of course, to expand on it. This is, these are the bare bones. But if I do that, if I comment on it, we're, we're going to run out of time for the material I want to cover. I realize I have in my, uh, in my form of this, which is larger print than yours, so that my geriatric eyes can see it, uh, I've got uh, 22 pages of notes here, and I'm only on page 7. So I'm one-third of the way through my material, and, and uh, we're, we're halfway through uh, the, this course. We only have this morning and tomorrow morning. So let's make progress. Verse 7 of Deuteronomy 6 says that we are to impress God's commandments on our children. We need to see this as a clear and unqualified command. Otherwise, we might wonder whether it is the wisest course to take. After all, secular psychologists do not at all agree that such is indeed a wise course to impress anything, let alone religious commandments upon our children. But words like these show us that the great religious revelation found in the Bible concerning God, concerning His law, and especially concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, all this is to be shared with the children. That's too weak a verb, share. It is to be given whole hog to our children, not doled out in bits and pieces. Even in Old Testament times. Listen to Psalm 78, 1 through 8, if you doubt my words. O oh, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, what we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which He commanded our forefathers to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget His deeds, but would keep His commands. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to Him. The revelation of God's redemptive work in Christ was, of course, limited to the realm of type and promise, but it was there, nonetheless, in this Old Testament dispensation. Parents were obligated to talk with their children about the God who had made all things and who promises to be the God of His covenant people. That is, the people upon whom He showers His love and the people who obey Him. Now, the reason, of course, why the Lord commands that this takes place is that the children 
are his. If they were not his to begin with, then we might wonder whether it is necessary or even wise to point them in his direction. But they are his. That's what Moses said to Pharaoh. Do you remember after the ninth plague, Pharaoh was really ticked. (laughs) And Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said, okay, now you're going to cough up, aren't you? We're, We're going out of here with our wives and with our children and our flocks or our herds are going to go with us. Moses said these words, our little ones also will go with us. Even our livestock must go with us. And here's my, one of my favorite clauses in all of Scripture. Not a hoof will be left behind. Moses was that kind of a narrow-minded leader. And Moses, uh, the Pharaoh went totally berserk at that point and said, get out of here. If I see your face in here again, you're a dead man. Of course, the next thing that happened, of course, was that Pharaoh's little man in his house was dead instead of Moses. Impress them on your children. Also, in verse 7 in uh, Deuteronomy 6, we read that we are to impress them on your children. The Christian education of covenant youth is first and foremost the responsibility of their parents. We're to impress the commandments of God on our children. There is a job for the church, yes. The church is described in the New Testament as the pillar and ground of the truth. And Jesus said to the apostles, representing the church, teaching them, and I take it that that means all of the thems that are in the church, the little ones as well as the big ones, teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded. Even the Christian school is no replacement for this foundational responsibility. Any Christian parent who concludes that because he or she has seen fit that the child is enrolled in a good Christian school, that this relieves the parent of any further responsibility for covenant nurture. Such a parent is making a huge mistake. Our marching orders are clear. We are to impress God's commands upon our children. This picture persists throughout the Bible, even as the grand knowledge of God and His Word Uh, unfolded within the Bible, the message was still communicated from parents to children. By the time the last page of the Bible was written, the message had assumed astonishing dimensions. It was the message of God's creation of all things. It was the message of God's salvation through Christ who died on Calvary's cross to redeem that creation. And it was the message of the Savior who was coming again to judge all men. And this message has major implications for all of learning. For at its center is the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Parents are responsible before God to nurture their children in all the wisdom of God as they themselves grasp it through their relationship with Jesus. Not the school, not the state, the home, you. Fathers are held particularly responsible for this as heads of their families. See Ephesians 6.4. Further, and you can see I'm squeezing these words of Deuteronomy 6 for all they're worth. 
These commandments, you can read this in right through verses 6 through 9, over and over again. These commandments, them, 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 that is the commandments. Repetition. It must be important. Covenant nurture is communication of truth about God that God himself has first revealed. It is not communication of any parent's individual gropings after some truth or other. It is nurture in God's Word. For God is the authority, and His Word, the Bible, is the standard. You have one primary textbook for child-rearing, parents, the Holy Bible, not Dr. Spock, not even Dr. Dobson. You may and must evaluate all human suggestions in the light of the pure and perfect Word of God. Consequently, you will need to know that Bible. For how can you communicate to your children what you don't know yourself? I've found this to be true, have you? That being responsible to communicate something to a child has a distinct way of focusing something. You can't beat around the bush with a child. Oh, you can, but you will get a blank stare in response. And certainly not obedience. You've got to boil things down and get to the point. I'm going to digress just briefly here. At Yardley, where I've been preaching for the last year or so, in the mornings, I have an item in worship that I call Heads Up. It comes right after the Scripture reading and the prayer for illumination for the preacher and the hearers of the sermon and before the sermon proper. Heads Up, it's God's Word to the children. And I leave my notes and I walk around the pulpit and I get real close to the children and I tell them in about two minutes' time, if it were possible, what the sermon's about. And people tell me afterwards that that's the best part of the sermon. <laughs> because I know I'm talking to those little sweethearts. They're like three and four. And I have got to get to the nub of things and boil it down. It forces me to do that. And it's a great discipline on this old preacher. Uh, you might try it, some of you preachers. Covenant nurture, in the words of God then, will require diligent preparation on the parents' part to grasp that revelation themselves. I would say that you go to Sunday school, mom and dad, not only for yourself, but for your children. That time when you are in the adult Sunday school class is your teacher training course. You must know for yourself, to be sure, but you must know for them, too. Then in verse 7 of Deuteronomy 6, I'm underlining at this point the simple word impress. Now, you know what an impression is. It puts into a material that which is found in the die. Impress. Covenant nurture is training. Now, it might appear rather circular to suggest that. 
but it is not, and the point needs to be made forcefully. Why? Because covenant nurture is a forceful enterprise. Just note the Hebrew verb that Moses employs as he communicates to the children of Israel what their responsibility is in this request. Impress them on your children. The verb means to sharpen. A related noun is the word tooth. Also, the particular form in which the word appears signifies intensity. Sharpen your children on the word of God. They are the blade and God's law is the file. They must give way to that file. They must be changed, molded, abraded in conformity to what it requires. Would you like to have sharp kids? And I'm not talking about 1,500 SAT scores. Would you like your children to grow up straight and strong? Mature, isn't it possible to have 1,500? Is that... Well, 15 would be pretty would be pretty decent, wouldn't it? Here's how to achieve it. Here's how your children can grow up straight and strong, maturing in wisdom, so that they can be a delight to people and bring pleasure to people. Delight to the Lord and bring pleasure to people. Would you like that? Well, here's how to achieve it. Apply the stone, the file, of the Word of God to their young lives. Impress God's Word upon them early and consistently, and they will be sharpened. Whatever their intellectual capacity, we're not talking about that, for that is a matter which in part is given. And if that's been given by the Sovereign God, it's okay. Don't worry about that. Their lives will, whatever their intelligence quotient is, will have an edge. There can be some children that have limited intellectual capacity whose lives can have an edge, and they will be able to accomplish something for God, no matter what their intelligent quotient might be. Only if they have been worked on by the file of God's Word early and rightly What a job you have, parents, so that they will become sharp tools for God. Parents, it's your job to see that that's done. How do you go about doing that? Well, look at verses 7 through 9 of Deuteronomy 6. Those verses read, talk about them. What is the them? The, The commands of God. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Covenant nurture, Christian education, is extensive. You know that word? Extensive. It goes everywhere in your life. This is a fascinating insight, isn't it? It pictures... Parents communicating the truth of God as something that fills their environment fully. It is the Word of God on the lips of men as they sit down, as they stride through town. 
It's laid across the walls of the home like a huge poster. It's burned into the doorposts. You run into it when you enter the house and when you leave. Wherever one goes, he runs into the knowledge that God has revealed. That's the kind of religion that our children are to face in our homes. It's a good kind of religion. Oh, the liberals scream bloody murder when they hear about this. You're not allowed to do that to a kid. It's not democratic. But the religion of the Bible is a religion that is the natural conversation of parents and children. Not just when they're on their way to church, when you might expect some religious talk, but when they are solving home disputes and determining home responsibilities. I remember one time when I was in a sore conflict with my 17-year-old daughter, Laura. And I was so mad at her, I'm not even going to tell you what she did. Probably wasn't subject to church discipline, but it sure was subject to dad discipline. And she was not responding very well. And I was not doing very well. I remember it vividly. It was at that point that I just started to pray and I called out upon the covenant God to have mercy upon me because I was full of anger at Laura and I was doing a miserable job of disciplining her. And I called out to God for help and I was a priest for her. I prayed for her. I brought her before the Lord and she could hear it. And it was probably one of my more down-to-earth prayers ever because something serious was at stake. And by the end of that prayer, my daughter physically was a little closer to me and the air lost its greenness (laughs) and we were peaceful. And she said, Daddy, I'm sorry. And I said, Laura, I'm sorry. And we, we really had a turning point in our relationship. She was a, a bit too much like me. And that's why we had a difficult time. But, you know, we are brother and sister in the Lord now. She lives in Boise, Idaho, and I live in Philadelphia. We don't see each other nearly as much as we would like to. And when we do, we have a great time. And that day when she was 18 something happened, it was a bit of a turning point in our relationship. It's a good kind of religion, religion of the passing of God's Word on from father to child, even sinful fathers and sinful children. This is the Word of God on the lips of men as they sit down, as they stride through town. It's laid across the walls of the home like a huge poster. It's burned into the doorposts. Wherever one goes, he runs into the knowledge God has revealed. That's the kind of religion that children face in such a home. It's a good kind of religion. It's the only kind. The religion of the Bible is a religion that is the natural conversation of parents and children, parents with their children, not just when they're on their way to church, but when they are solving home disputes and determining home responsibilities. 
This picture of Deuteronomy 6 is a beautiful picture. It is a picture of a fully integrated world. The home, according to the model here in Deuteronomy 6, is to be a place where there is continual conversation about the things of God. And the children who live in the home have the privilege to learn about these things. The so-called sacred and the so-called secular truly merge in a home where covenant nurture is in the air. Now that's quite a picture. And none of our homes come close to representing this, but it is our model. It is our goal. It was for the children of Israel and it is for the, for the children of the Christian church. Now, um, what we've been talking about here, let's get back to the beginning so that we don't lose our way, is why we are to teach our covenant children. And the first point was because God commands it. And so we've been looking at Deuteronomy 6, and I, I, I take it that you agree with me that God does command it. But uh, Proverbs 26, verse 6, uh, 22, verse 6, uh, tells us something about the consequences of covenant nurture. Literally, the words are of this proverb, train a child according to his way. The Hebrew is dar ka, his way. And when he is old, he will not depart or turn from it. Now, there are a number of exegeses of, of this verse, and I adopt one that may not be yours. I don't know. And uh, we're not going to say that uh, this whole week has been lost if we disagree on the exegesis of this one verse. But let me present to you what I, I take it to mean. Some uh, take this verse to mean, train a child according to God's way. And they get that from... Uh, reading such uh, versions as the King James Version, which we all learned, well, some of us older folks learned when we were kids, uh, train up a child in the way that he should go. Now those words, the way that he should go, if the King James Version that you had, some of you oldsters like me, when you were young, uh, if it was the, the correct King James Version, it would have had those words, that he should go, in italics because they're not in the Hebrew. <laughs> it's a, an interpretation, not a translation. And that happens sometimes, even in the King James Version. But at least they had the decency to put it in italics. And uh, I'm very thankful for that. It was very honest of the King James translators to say, look, this is a way of saying what we think the Hebrew means, but it's not an exact translation of the Hebrew. Another uh, exegesis, uh, I, I reject that one, by the way. <laughs> I don't think that's what the verse is saying. Train a child according to God's way. A second translation is train up a child according to his, that is the child's way. By that is meant according to his capacity and characteristics. In other words, tailor make your training. If your kid... Uh, needs a certain emphasis, then emphasize that from the Bible. If your child uh, can't grasp certain concepts, then don't bring those concepts to the child yet. Uh, keep in mind where the kid is and tailor your training according to the child's capacity to receive it. I, I don't like that one either. 
I, I suggest rather that Proverbs 22.6, train a child according to his way, which is a literal translation of the Hebrew. Train a child according to his way means exactly that. Train a child according to the child's way, that is, according to his willful, sinful way, or to put it another way, spoil your child. And uh, guess what will happen? When he is old, he will not turn from it. You're going to sadly put him on a course that is going to continue to be his course unless God intervenes sovereignly and changes it. So uh, I think that Proverbs 22.6 is not so much a promise if you do well in child nurture, that will be a good thing. <laughs> I think what Proverbs 22.6 is saying is if you not, do not do well in child, in child nurture, then don't expect some sort of divine intervention to alter that. It's going to continue to go in that wrong direction. Now, God may still be merciful, but that's not what the proverb is saying. You have no right to expect God to come in and fix your mess. He may, but you may not expect that. Train a child according to the child's way, and he'll keep going that way. At least he will be comfortable going that way because he's not getting any static from his parents. Well, I leave that with you. It, it's under the heading because of the consequences. <laughs> the consequences are very serious if covenant nurture is not followed. Now, you may not agree with that exegesis, but there it is for your consideration. C, because they are members of the church. This is why we are teaching our covenant children. Not because they're our kids or because it's the law of the land or any other thing. We train them because they are members of the church. And God has put them into our hands and our arms as parents with the responsibility to train them because they belong to His church. We're not um, Baptists. That's not a pejorative term, Baptist. I'm not saying Baptists are bad people. Don't misunderstand me. But we're not Baptists in this regard. We do not believe that God has a relationship with each individual and each individual is responsible to answer before God. And there isn't any covenant connection at all particularly. That's why Baptists don't baptize their infants. They wait until the infants grow up. Now, Baptists, our Baptist brethren, don't say, of course, the parents aren't supposed to teach their children anything. Parents are supposed to teach their children, but they do not see the parents as God's authorized representatives to not only tell the children what to do, but to take them in the way of the Lord by whatever means are necessary, including spanking, if it should call for that because those children belong to God. God put them in that covenant home. People don't have babies. God gives babies 
parent. And when God gives this or that baby Christian parents, He gives those parents a task, and that is to train and raise and take those children in the way, the Derek Yahweh, in the way of the Lord. That's why they are members of the church. And when we baptize children, we don't say we baptize them to make them members of the church. We say they are baptized because they are members of the church. That's why they receive the sign of that membership. Back to my text. In baptism, the church administers to a person something that God wants done. He wants his child identified. Branded? Yes, I'm willing to use the metaphor, even though branding sort of implies pain. I think it's a good metaphor. As his. How do we know that? Why do we baptize the infant children of believers? There is no scriptural command, verse, or passage that directly and specifically mandates the baptism of children of believers. If such were the case, of course, there would be no controversy among Bible believers on this score. Would there? All Bible-believing Baptists would agree with us, and we would all be doing the same thing. However, not only that which is directly and specifically commanded in the Bible constrains our obedience, but also that which by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. In other words, what the Bible clearly implies the Bible teaches. The argument for infant baptism then belongs in this category and may be set forth as follows. A. Presupposition. There is one church throughout all of human history and spanning both the Old and New Testament ages. If there are two churches, of course, it could be the case that God decreed infants to be in the one, the earlier one, but uh, not in the other one, the one we got now. But there is clear and indisputable evidence in Scripture that for this one church, God has decreed that one, its members are to be identified as such. Genesis 17, 10 through 13, Psalm 89, 34. You could look up those verses. Psalm 89, 34 is particularly relevant because it says, I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. And I believe that psalm means it would take a clear and direct statement by God himself to lead anybody to conclude that whereas he once included infants in his church, later on he changed his mind and now does not want them included in his church. Because no Baptist, no evangelical Baptist, will argue that God once upon a time did not include infants in his church. They know he did. They know he did. What God did alter, as a matter of fact, was the manner of identification. This God does indeed by a clear and direct statement. In Colossians 2, 11 and 12, where we read, In him you were also circumcised. That's Christ. He's talking to the New Testament church. In Christ you were circumcised, 
in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. God changes the sign. Now it is baptism instead of circumcision. God also changes the gender of the subjects. Now both male and female are thus identified, and not male only. But notice well that he does not change the age of the subjects in the slightest. So the first argument then for infant baptism is that the members of God's church are to be identified as such. Two, the children of church members are members. Two, see the above argumentation. Therefore, the conclusion is inescapable. The children of church members are to be identified as church members. Then I put it another way. The biblical support for infant baptism takes the form of a syllogism. You know that word? Logical argumentation. Major premise. The members of God's church are to be identified, baptized. That, that's, the, that's the badge of membership of the church, baptism. Members of the church are to be baptized. Minor premise. The children of believers are members of God's church. Huh? The conclusion <laughs> can't be escaped. The children of believers are to be identified, therefore baptized. The church helps parents in the covenant nurture of the covenant members of the church. Thus, the children must be understood as included in the church's teaching ministry. Not that the church replaces the parents, but that church officers are responsible also to help parents fulfill their duty and to provide assistance in the covenant nurture of the children. Note the breadth of these verses, folks. Acts 20.27 Church elders are commanded to be shepherds of the church of God. And I don't see any parenthetical expression. I mean those over 18. Romans 12.7 They are to teach. 1 Timothy 3.2 They are to be able to teach. 1 Timothy 5.17 The gospel minister's work is labeled both preaching and teaching. 2 Timothy 1.13, Timothy has said, what, to him, Timothy has said, what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, guard the good deposit. And in Titus 1.9, an elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. That's why we have catechism, I hope, in our churches. I hope all of your churches have catechetical instruction. Now, I suppose it is theoretically possible that the church could be so satisfied with the job that the parents are doing that it's like 100% being done. The session knows this, and they say it would just be duplication, total duplication for us to do anything. But I have a sneaking suspicion that probably does not obtain. And we need each other. 
And both the church as church and the parents as parents need to link arms and be involved in this. Uh, when I uh, went to New Zealand, this was, I got turned on to this. Because as I went to New Zealand in, in 1964, as a, as a minister, I came into a Reformed church where their practice had been catechetical instruction given by parents and by the church. That had not been my experience growing up in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. But uh, I soon experienced it in New Zealand, and I soon found out that the elders said uh, to me, oh, by the way, Domine, what day are you having catechism class? They didn't say, are you? They said, which day? <laughs> and if I had said, what? They would have put me on the next boat back to USA. But I said, uh, 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 what, which day do you think is a good day? <laughs> and uh, I got going, and for seven and a half years I taught catechism the Heidelberg Catechism, to the children in the Reformed Churches of New Zealand. So, when I came back to this country in 1971, in July, and I started to candidate, I candidated at Trinity Church, Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hatboro, and the uh, congregation voted to, to call me. And I said to them, maybe. It all depends. Will you have catechism class? And they said, what exactly? And I told them, will you let me help you see to it that these children are catechized? We're going to work together on this, and I'm going to expect your support. And they said, bah, 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 bah. I guess so. I said, that's not good enough. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't have time to waste on this. I'm going to find a church that's going to do it right. If it's not you, hopefully it'll be somebody else. So... Uh, they thought it over, and they got back to me, and they said, okay, we'll do it. And so we did it. And so for nine years, as I was pastor in, uh, in Hatboro, we had catechism class. And I had in my catechism class David Haney, controller of our worldwide outreach program. Little David. And some others, too, <laughs> whose names you will know. Well, then I got called to Silver Spring, Maryland in uh, 1989. Or in, uh, in, uh, let's see, I was in, in uh, Hatboro from 71 to 80. In 1980, I got called to Silver Spring, Maryland. And they said, will you come down here? And I said, maybe. How about you folks? We have catechism class. Now, they hadn't been having catechism class down there either. And uh, they thought about it, and they said, okay, we'll do it. And so I went there, and we had catechism class there and uh, for nine years. So for 18 years, I taught catechism. And then uh, in 1989, uh, I was asked if I would become general secretary of the Committee on Christian, Christian Education, and I said, maybe. <laughs> Am I going to be allowed to push this in the denomination? And the committee said, of course. And so I developed a, a course on catechetical instruction, you can see a video of it. Uh, how many of you have seen that video? A few of you. It's available. You can write to the Committee on Christian Education. They'll send it to you. It's a two-and-a-half-hour or two-and-a-quarter-hour video. Uh, why uh, uh, teach the catechism? How to teach the catechism? And I, I guess I gave that uh, seminar about 55 times in uh, nine years, ten years, as General Secretary of Christian Ed. And the denomination, you paid for my airfare 
tens of thousands of dollars, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars, over the course of, of those uh, ten years, going about our denomination and encouraging churches to have catechetical instruction for their covenant youth. I think it was money well spent. I found out when I began, I did a little investigation, and it was my considered judgment that only about 40% of our Orthodox Presbyterian churches had any kind of formal catechetical instruction. I don't know what the number is now, but I I think and I trust and I hope that it's a a bit better. I was not uh, promoting in that course uh, of instruction or in those uh, seminars or in those videos that you had to do it my way. (laughs) I didn't say here is the way to do it. I said here is a way of doing it. And if you can find another way, a better way that works, but does the job, go for it. I'm real liberal when it comes to method, but I'm real fussy when it comes to the reason why we are to do these things. Okay, we're going to close this segment. Uh, I guess we go to 10.30, don't we here? Is that right? Uh, Here are some questions for discussion. Have we got uh, somebody with a mic? Good, thank you. First question, is it a good idea for a church to have a youth pastor and separate youth groups? If not, why not? What are your responses to this? Any ideas? Is it a good idea for a church to have a youth pastor and separate youth groups in the church? By separate, I mean youth groups where just the kids of that age come to the youth groups with the youth pastor. Maybe you thought, why in the world is he asking that question? There's an answer back there. You probably wonder whether I maybe I'm questioning this. <laughs> okay. I think it is correct because with a youth group, the kids don't have such a... Uh, they, aren't, they don't feel like they're being pushed to do wrong things. Like in public schools, you have a type of force behind them. They have like a... They're trying to... Okay, sorry. They don't have such a peer pressure of doing wrong stuff. They actually have a group where they can have a peer pressure of doing what's right. And a youth pastor, I don't think that really matters. We have someone who teaches, but he's not being paid. So he has fun with doesn't. So you're in favor of it? Yes. Okay. Thank you for that. Here's some other suggestions up here. Work your way up forward. There's one in the back, one in the front. Thank you, Brother Allen. church in another denomination that not only had a youth group and a youth pastor, but youth church. And over the course of seven or eight years in that church, we didn't see any youth ever ever integrated back into the larger church. And the justification made sense. The kids need something that they can relate to, something that's special for them. But the fruit that we saw was that when kids weren't treated as though they could all understand the message, at one point the pastor decided that the youth would be in youth church uh, 
you know, one Sunday a month, but they weren't listening because they'd already decided this wasn't for them. Thank you for that. We, we understand you well. We're not at this point seeking to debate or investigate everything that's said, but I just want to hear from you. This is open mic. The children's, children's church, and um, I felt very strong. I wanted my children with us. We're a covenant family, and I wanted them to worship. As far as the youth pastor, I don't know what youth pastors do. <laughs> we have a wonderful pastor, and we have a session, and we have an elder in particular who does organize some events for you know, single people and maybe the older teenagers, and I think there comes an age where there is a time for the teenagers to be able to have an activity that um, focuses on their age group. I think that's a good thing with the supervision of elders or um, adults. <laughs> um, but I don't think a youth pastor is a necessary thing. Okay, thank you. We're, sorry for the we're, technical we're, difficulty. We think the battery's going dead, so we're going to replace it. We're going to replace the battery. Hang on. Our trusty technician. Our technician extraordinaire is going to. Next. Let's try it again. We're getting some real feedback here, the good kind of feedback. When I first saw this question, I had some thoughts on it, and the things that other people are saying are con kind of confirming those. Um, I have two answers for you, having a youth pastor or not. I think you should have a youth, youth pastor if the pastor and the rest of the congregation feel that they are too old to relate to youth. And, but if they think that they can actually relate to youth, then you don't need one. If you, can, if you can relate to kids on their level, like you said, you get down with the, the three and four-year-olds and you make the message so that they can understand it, then you don't need to do that. And I think it's better not to do that, too, to, to keep them in with the regular group, to make them feel like they're part of the church, that they're not just some special animals that need to be put in a different you know, box over on the side. <laughs> well, when are you proposing that they be separate? And how will that well, work? I'm just saying that... I'm saying... to... that they don't need to be separate if people are willing to reach to their level. You know, you have to have somebody that's got some energy and, you know, some wants to take the time to think through things and to you know, like listen to their music and, and talk to them on what, how they think, but, but use the Bible and relate to them in that way. Maybe some of the youth would like to indicate whether they want to be separated or do they want to be closer, more closely integrated to the congregation. Any ideas? You're not a youth, but you can yeah, speak. Yeah, I don't think uh, what you had in mind. But uh, the comment I had, I, I think um, an ideal church would be uh, a church where you had maybe 10 or 12 youth groups and uh, the youth pastor was called Dad 
and the assistant <laughs> youth pastor was called Mom, and uh, the youth groups got together for activities and, and shared that way, and uh, that, that's a lot of the way uh, our church works. In fact, we've had people come to our church and say, you don't have a youth group, right? And they said, okay, we're staying. So I, you know, there is a broad opinion on this. Thank you. All right. That, I think we've heard some things that will give us some pause to think. Oh. I think that in part this is going to, be, going to be determined by how many people you're dealing with. Uh, many times churches have associate pastors because they cannot deal with all of the things that are there. There's too much in the way of work. I think the key to the youth group, and I'm looking at several members of the youth group of our, of our congregation now. I look out there. One of them is running the, the soundboard back there. Uh, they do need some activities on them, but the key to whether it's good or bad is how well it integrates into the church at large. And if they are put off to an entirely different, as somebody said, species or something, you've got a real problem. On the other hand, if they are integrated in and there are certain things that they have interest in, certain ways they can serve in the church, and that does require someone, whether it's an elder or, or whatever it is, in our case it's an uh, individual who has a real interest in them, uh, then at that point they can really be an extremely useful asset to the church and the church can minister to them. Right. But it's how well they integrate into it that I think is the key to it. In other words, what you're saying is, if I understand you, we don't need a youth service once a year where the youth take over instead of the minister and do their thing in worship, but rather they need to be integrated in every worship service. Okay. Tom, can I yep. add one quick thing? I think we also have to realize we live in a culture, a secular culture, that intends to drive a wedge between parents and children. And if you lose the balance that Larry McCard was talking about of integrating youth activities into the church, not separating them out, you're actually furthering that wedge that the secular culture tries to drive. Okay. Good. Thank you. I'm sure there's a lot more that could be said, but we'll move on because we want to try to cover this material. I'm only on page 12, and I've got to get to 22 in my notes. We probably will never get there. All right. The church helps parents in the covenant nurture of the covenant members of the church. Did you hear that? Let me repeat it. The church helps parents in the covenant nurture of the covenant members of the church. Thus, the children must be understood as included in the church's teaching ministry. Not that the church replaces the parents, but that church officers are responsible also to help parents fulfill their duty and to provide assistance in the covenant nurture of the children. Note the breadth of these verses. Acts 20:27. 20, Elders are commanded to be shepherds of the church of God. Not a word there about the adult members of the church of God. Just the church. Romans 12, 7. Elders are to teach. 1 Timothy 3, 2. They're to be able to teach. doesn't say all the big people in the church. The church. 1 Timothy 5, 17. The gospel minister's work is labeled both preaching and teaching. Of course, of the whole church. 2 Timothy 1, 13. What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching. Guard the good deposit. Titus 1.9, an elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those 
to oppose it. I'm saying that all of these verses understand the church to include all of the members of the church. So the minister and the elders have a responsibility to the entire church. Of course, the parents have the initial responsibility for the training and covenant nurture of the children. But I repeat it again, the church helps parents in the covenant nurture of the covenant members of the church. Okay. Um, is it a good idea for a church to have a youth pastor and separate youth groups? If we just did that one. Okay. Isn't covenant nurture repressive or unfair? Shouldn't children be allowed to develop their own views and values? Simply stated, no. And covenant nurture is not repressive or unfair? You agree that it's not? Good. You, you don't uh, say, you can decide whether to drink that poison or not. If you drink it, you might find out that it doesn't do your stomach too well, or maybe your life. We don't allow our children to develop their own views and values. We direct them. And we even insist that they follow our direction. And when they disobey, we spank them. Horrors! How undemocratic. Do we baptize our children because they are members of the church or in order to enroll them as members? A is correct, because they are members. Well, that was a piece of cake. Now let's move on and make a break, uh, beginning into the next major section, which is what do we teach our covenant children? The Bible. <laughs> it's 1,635 pages long, at least in one version. So we had jolly well better get busy. Read it often and aloud to your children. You might want to have a look at arch books. How many of you have used those? A, a scattering published by Concordia Press, a Missouri Synod Lutheran house, which present many, many Bible stories in delightful poetry, excellent for three to eight-year-olds. Even 68-year-olds love archbook poetry. Or you can get a hold of Promise and Deliverance by S.G. DeGraff, a three-volume, actually it's a four-volume, this is a mistake, three volumes, I believe, in the Old Testament, one in the New, Presentation of the Christ of the Bible. It's an excellent tool for teaching children of any age because it has two sections, one for the teacher and one for the students. The uh, section for the students is in a little, little larger font size, so you can keep clear which section is which. But it's particularly appropriate for teenagers. When I was in New Zealand, and, and the, when I was in Hatboro, I should say, after coming back to New Zealand, I had five teenagers simultaneously at one point for about six months. Five. Our five children were all teenagers, 12 to 19. And uh, during those years when I had a whole bunch of teenagers around, uh, I was reading Promise and Deliverance in family devotion, and the kids found that very acceptable. The Bible is not a moral or ethical code book from which we glean interesting models for our behavior, or as a dictionary of theology that we consult for answers to our doctrinal questions. It is a covenantal document that sets forth the great deeds of God in Christ for our salvation. The story of David and Goliath is not about Jack the Christian giant killer or how little people can do big things. The story of David and Goliath 
is about God's gracious deliverance through the greater David, Christ, of his beloved people from their sin and its consequences and from any power that would propose to destroy them. Here are some practical suggestions for you when you're teaching the Bible to your family. To gain a good grasp of biblical theological content, read Covenants by Dr. Palmer Robertson. You can get that book from GCP. Or The Kingdom of Heaven by Curry Inman. I think that some of those are still available from CCE. If you can't get it from CCE, you can write to New Life PCA in Glenside, Pennsylvania, uh, where Mr. Inman is a member, and I think he's got a couple boxes of them in his basement. He'll send it to you. B, don't ever leave Christ out of an Old Testament story and don't ever leave the Old Testament out of the Gospel. C, look for the already, not yet perspective everywhere. Whatever story you're reading to your children, ask yourself the question, how does this story show us already that God has begun the fulfillment of His covenant promises? And also look for what is yet to be fulfilled in the future. And you'll find probably that in almost every one of these biblical passages, there's something to say for each of those two. And then ask yourself the question, how does this event fit into the history of redemption and the rest of Scripture? Let's say you're reading to your children about Jesus walking on the water. Don't just say, Jesus walked on the water, ain't that great. Now let's pray. (laughs) Say, why are we told this? Well, of course we're told it because this is the God that is before those disciples. The God who is. In fact, He would pass them by just as He would pass by Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament. And uh, He would pass the disciples by and they were very, very quiet because they were dealing with the divine maker of heaven and earth in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And then... Explain that to their children, that when they say, your children, that when they talk about Jesus, they're not talking about some man, some even great man. They're talking about the God-man who may command them, whom they must believe and obey. Now, the second section I'm not going to uh, go through right now. It's a, it's a sermon that I preached probably in some of your churches, and the notes are here pretty clear. The summary of it is that Exodus 3, 13 through 15, the story of Moses meeting Yahweh at the burning bush and hearing that his name is I am who I am, is a wonderful passage for our understanding of covenant nurture. And we hear of God's name being requested. Moses wants to know who he's dealing with. Uh, God reveals his name as the great I am and he tells, shows Moses what that means. And then that has impact on us in our teaching of covenant children that we are to remember the name of God. In fact, every time you teach your children, you're simply introducing them to Yahweh, the God who is there, and what that means. So because of time constraints, I'll just leave you to to check those notes yourself. But we will look at a couple of questions for discussion and then we'll stop for now. How does a grasp of the divine name, Yahweh, give stability, direction, and focus to everything that you teach your children? Anybody want to answer that one? 
Who cares what his name is? What does that have to do with our Christian education of our children? Where's our mic? Anybody? Yeah, there's... Now you could say that, yep. All right, what what is the divine name here? Yahweh. I am that I am. This is uh, apologetics, folks. This is where you communicate to your children uh, what our starting point is. It isn't that we Westerners who happen to be Protestant Christians uh, have uh, uh, been taught some things that, well, this is just what we believe. We need to show our children that we're dealing here with the divine creator, with the God who is there as... um, that we read in, in Schaefer's uh, books, the God who is there, and we are responsible before him to bow in adoration. And he is also our Savior. Uh, what is the most precious gift that you can give your children? Any answers? A good education? Knowledge? Knowledge and love for the Lord. Notice the order in which he put it. You don't want to divorce those two, do you? And it's not love and knowledge of God, kind of like an oozy thing that they feel good and then later on maybe learn stuff. But, but you talk to them, you give them content, you tell them who God is, and you, you, you remind them that they are responsible to, to respond to him in obedience and love. And they show that by obeying and loving you the parents whom God has given to them. All right, next uh, time, which will be uh, tomorrow morning, we'll try to finish up by uh, talking about how we uh, actually instruct our children. And we'll talk about catechetical instruction and a few other bits and pieces. And I'll have to skip some things, I can see, because I'm only on page 15 (laughs) of my notes. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for yourself. We thank you that you with the Son and the Holy Spirit are one God and our God. And we thank you for the revelation of your person and nature in Holy Scripture and even in creation, the things that you have made. And we bow before you and own you and acknowledge you as the the God, the true living God, and who is our Savior. We praise you that you save us and you save our children. You don't save them automatically, but you save them through the means that you have given And you hold us as parents responsible to instruct them in the way of the Lord, Derek Yahweh, not only who He is, but what He commands us. And you instruct them to respond in faith. And you give them hearts that will respond in faith. Hallelujah. All praise and glory and honor belongs to you, our God. Through Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.